is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the Country Hour, a special program today. We are broadcasting from the Convention Centre in Darwin for the 2022 Live Exchange Conference. This is the big event on the calendar for Australia's live export trade. And today, more than 400 delegates in the Convention Centre to learn all the news, innovations happening in the live export trade at the moment. There's lots to talk about. Let's get straight into it. My first guest this afternoon is Ollie Thorne. Now, Ollie works for the live export company Oztrex. But in big news this week, Ollie is now the new chairman of the Young Livestock Exporters Network. Welcome to the Country Hour, Ollie. Uh, tell us a bit about your story. How did you get into the live export trade? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Very glad to be here back in, uh, back in Darwin. Bloody hot, but... Yes. Um, fantastic to see everyone again after a few interrupted years. Um, yeah, mate, big honour. Pretty exciting to, um, to come in as chair. Big shoes to fill um, from, from Kari. There's been two chairs um, prior to me and very excited to, to step into the role and um, got a great team around me. Looking forward to, to working with them. Yep. And, and, and tell us your story, your, your journey into the live export trade. Ollie. Yeah, mate, I, um, I came up after after school, after I finished school up into the Territory and did a bit of station work. I uh, went back down to uni and then came back up again and, and fell into um, working on the boats as a stocky. So I did, um, I did about four years, three and a half years as a stockman um, and now I'm, I'm in the office with, with Oztrek, so a bit of a, a sea change, pardon the pun, but um, I'm loving it, mate, loving it. The Territory's cattle industry has lost a lot of good people over the years who have gone to uni and haven't come back. So what drew you back to the north and, and to the industry? Mate, uh, funnily enough, I never left. I, um, I went briefly to, to Armidale to, to start uni and then I threw it online. So I did, um, I did about two and a half years of that time on the boat studying uh, abroad, taking that, uh, the distance education a little bit differently. Hang on a minute, you're literally on live export ships with animals and, and studying along the way. Correct. Yeah, so it was a good, uh, a good pastime. Get away from the cows. Yeah. Um, get the math skills, English skills up to scratch. But um, no, mate, that was that was great. Taught me a lot about time management, which I'm still working on. But um, yeah, so I never never really left. Um, and I think you know the opportunities that, that live export across the whole supply chain offers is is what draws people up like myself um, back in. From working on the boats, is it easy to describe what your job sort of involves these days? Um, mate, my, my job these days is, is made a lot easier by the fact that I spent the time on the boats um, and that practical sort of on-the-ground on the experience is um, putting me in very good stead um, working out of the office, understanding what the guys on the ground are, are dealing with and what the animals are dealing with so that we can continue, uh, continue to improve our, our systems. And as I said, you're now the chair of Wyland, the Young Livestock Exporters Network. For our audience and for those who perhaps haven't come across Wyland, can you explain to us what the network's about and what it does? Yeah, mate, Wyland's, um, Wyland's been around since 2019. It was established by young professionals in the industry, um, for young professionals. There was a, a bit of a gap uh, in the industry uh, in terms of professional development opportunities and networking opportunities for, for our generation. Um, so that group of um, awesome individuals got together and um, put together the network, and it's really now all about building leadership um, and pathways for professional development through the supply chain so that we can 
um, contribute to the to the industry going forward. You know, step into those um, those bigger roles where we can influence change. Yep. And you bring in people from all over. It's not just northern cattle. Yeah, mate. We've got uh, we've got people in every state and territory of um, of Australia and, and international. Um, some international members too. So we've had 150% growth in the last 12 months. We've got over 300 members, um, and 50% of those are pastoralists. So wow. shows a, a great diversity and a, a thirst for um, for professional development and networking. Have you got some people yet on the other end of the supply chain, like young professionals in Indonesia, for example? Yep, yep. We've got plenty in uh, plenty in Indonesia. Wow. Um, there's okay. a few of those that have um, that have turned up today. So they're really keen to collaborate. Um, that's pretty exciting too. A big conference like this one, which goes over two days, what does someone like you try to extract from it? Mate, I think, I think just the ability to, to understand what the industry needs to do to succeed into the future. Um, but, but mostly the conversations had with the industry leaders that are around here, um, you know, I love to pick up as much advice um, as possible and a week like this is perfect for that because there's so many leaders here and, and, and Wyland's sort of opened that, that door of, uh, of conversations with those people um, so really just the conversations that we can have whether it's here at the conference or at the pub afterwards um, they're so willing to impart their knowledge and what they've learnt into us the younger, the younger generation Well enjoy the conference well done on becoming the chair of Wyland and thanks so much for your time on the Country Hour Thanks Matt Thank That you. is uh, Ollie Thorne who is yeah, the brand new chair of the Young Live Exporters Network Wyland He's from Austrex. We are broadcasting from the Live Exchange Conference for 2022 being held in Darwin this year It's been three years since they've been able to hold a conference like this for, for reasons that you know uh, I'm joined now by Tracy Hayes, speaking of leaders of the industry. Tracy Hayes, former uh, Chief Executive of the NT Cattlemen's Association. Good to see you. Welcome to the Country Hour. Good afternoon, Matt. Before we get into our, our topic here, Tracy, just uh, firstly, hearing a, a young leader like Ollie Thorne, what's your take on that, given we're, ab- we're about to talk about what's been learned since 2011? Mm. Seeing people like Ollie in action, how do you, how does that make you feel? Yeah, look, it makes me feel like the uh, industry is on the right track. It's uh, really invested heavily in its future leaders, uh, both um, from a young livestock exporter's perspective and a young producer's perspective. Um, and programs such as Wyland, which um, Ollie is now the, the new chair of, um, are really paving the way and setting an example for young people to engage in agriculture and uh, showing a keen to learn, showing an interest in the topics, emerging threats and opportunities uh, for their industry. And it's really fantastic to see uh, young folks step up and uh, take on these challenging roles and, and, and uh, in such a professional and Fair to say, you know, it was an awesome uh, interview Ollie just did with you now, standing on the sidelines, listening in, and uh, it really makes me proud of our our young leaders in the Territory. Now, you facilitated a panel session this morning that was called What Have We Learned from 2011? And that's in reference, of course, to the live export ban to Indonesia. Everyone on the panel talked about that moment and where they were in 2011, what are your memories of that time, Tracy Hayes? Yeah, so we thought it was important to spend the first couple of minutes on the panel reflecting uh, about um, 2011 and the immediacy following the announcement to ban um, 
the trade. Uh, you would recall, Matt, that there had been uh, some talk in industry that there was a shock coming. No one was really too sure about the magnitude and the scale and what we were uh, going to have to, to deal with. And uh, and then, of course, it was the um, immediate fallout following the airing of the Four Corners report and uh, and what that meant for many of us uh, that were either in leadership roles or as producers or even just as a family members trying to support those in, in leadership positions. And, of course, many in this room have uh, very vivid memories of what went down. And, and what about you? What, can you remember where you were, what you were doing? Yes, I can. I can remember exactly where I was. I was sitting uh, on the couch in our lounge room at uh, Deepwell Station, uh, beef producer in Central Australia at the time, and uh, on the executive of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's also so um, as a board, we were all watching uh, the Four Corners story in our own homes and, uh, and the plan was to reconvene following the airing of, of the footage for um, a, sort of, a, I guess, a, a post-episode uh, um, discussion and, uh, and that really um, was the start of what was a, quite an extraordinary ride. Um, the, the first, uh, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours uh, post uh, the show going to air, the uh, the immediacy of the outrage and the outcry from the community, uh, responding to what um, they saw on the television program, and uh, and the the impact of of that on governments and leadership and and uh, and decision makers nationally and internationally. So for me, it was. Uh, it was a, a period of calm before the storm, and and yeah, and then it's sort of the fury, uh, the fury erupted, and uh, and the trade was banned. So this key question today: What's been learnt from 2011? Uh, you, you, and you listen to the, everyone on the panel. What were what were your takeaway messages? What has been learnt? Yeah, so there were some really strong key messages come out of that. I, I think an, an acknowledgement by Dr. Peter Barnard that industry had in fact been doing a lot in the regulatory and compliance space in the lead up to the ban, um, the live export class action, the evidence that came out as a result of that um, proved beyond doubt that there were legitimate compliant and. Uh, um, OAE animal welfare best practice supply chains operating into Indonesia. So we've learned that uh, knee-jerk reactions by government are, are not the right way to uh, address uh, a crisis when, uh, when things like this occur. We also um, heard further about the impact it had from a government-to-government perspective uh, on our relationship with Indonesia. They were uh, at the time solely reliant on us as a trusted trading partner to supply uh, their um, quality protein, what what arguably uh, is a vulnerable um, population, a low socioeconomic bracket for many and uh, and we were their only source of food so I think in some ways uh, post-COVID or even during COVID Australians had a really tiny taste of what it's like to not be able to go to the supermarket and buy the food that we would normally buy because it's not on the shelves because of logistics issues or because the creek's flooding or you know there's no toilet paper and um 
And here we were, an entire nation that uh, had a trusted trading relationship with us, completely have their main source of protein denied from them by a decision of government. So Argu- we've arguably, a lot. arguably, they're learnings for government, though, aren't they? What well, about the industry itself? And well, maybe that's where we should talk about social media, because you mentioned how it's yes. become a tool, potentially even a even a weapon for those on the land. Um, yeah. So what, what's agriculture like with social media now compared to 2011, do you think? Look, I think uh, we reflected in 2011 that social media wasn't a tool that was well understood or known by many partialists. In fact, connectivity in remote and rural areas barely existed and many were still dialing into the internet with a, with a fax data line. Um, certainly Wi-Fi wasn't ubiquitous. So those uh, that were speaking uh, at the time and dominating the social media space uh, were well connected and uh, and certainly ahead of the game. Um, 11 years on, I think uh, industry is uh, much better at communicating its message. We certainly still have a lot of work to do and that was communicated today. Yeah, Are you able to share that stat on how many followers Animals Australia has versus... Yeah, well, Meat and Livestock Australia. That's right. And I think that captures how much more work that we have to do. So, you know, the animal activists and, uh, you know, their their followers and their likes, I guess, of their social media platforms is uh, in the millions. And, uh, and for industry bodies and, and those that uh, have the responsibility of, of uh, taking our voice to the nation, um, representing our message, uh, you know, th- uh, in some cases, uh, less than 5,000. So I think uh, Donald Sullivan, who was uh, on the panel, really captured the sentiment of, of that discussion very well. She is uh, what I guess you would call an, uh, an influencer. She has more than 5,000 uh, Instagram followers. And uh, so that's more than our national cattle representative body. So... If we see social media as, a, as a, an important tool in the arsenal, if mm. I can call it that, for, uh, to defend industry in times of crisis, then we need to be uh, doing a bit more in that space. The, the, the peak bodies could be doing better? Would you say? Yes, the peak bodies, uh, look, it's a difficult one. And I think we heard today from the panel that it's not clear who the main voice should be and, uh, and how you know, we perhaps could be better um, at coordinating our, our message and, and be clear exactly on what that message is. Uh, Major General Stephen Day talked about the importance of understanding our purpose. And mm. yeah, so there's some, certainly some learnings for us uh, from that. And uh, one of the panellists mentioned the importance of the message being delivered by those that have skin in the game. So not just industry bodies, but also producers and, and farmers and exporters and members of the supply chain. Uh, the community are looking for authentic engagement. They really want to understand our supply chain. They want greater transparency around our practices. And, and what better um, position for that message to be delivered than from those at the coalface? And we're about to hear from Donald Sullivan in just a moment. Uh, just finally, do you have any... Uh information updates for our audience when it comes to the live export class action the successful class action but what two years have passed and 
still no compensation money flowing. Yeah, so it's a great level of frustration for myself and many others, I'm sure. So um, uh, we've been given undertakings by government that they're certainly working on it. It's to some degree out of our hands now. It's uh, really the responsibility um, of the uh, machinery of government to uh, to process that, to work through um, the categories of loss and the details of the claim, and and uh, and agree or disagree on on the quantum. And um, so there's still some negotiations and discussions uh, to be had yet. Um, but you can be rest assured that from an industry perspective, we're doing what we can to encourage government to get on with it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This afternoon, Tracy, enjoy the rest of Live Exchange. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, that is Tracy Hayes, former Chief Executive of the NT Cattlemen's Association, and she was the moderator this morning for a panel session called What Have We Learned from 2011? And as mentioned, one of uh, the people on the panel was Donald Sullivan. Now, she was asked to talk about her experience in 2011, her memories of that time. And... Remember, Donald's dad, Rowan Sullivan, was at the time the president of the NT Cattlemen's Association and he featured heavily in the Four Corners program. So she spoke about her memories of that time. She was at school when it all went down, but she had memories of Four Corners rocking up to the station. She had memories of the program going to air and memories of the fallout. Let's listen to her account now. Yeah, so when the program aired we'd watched we'd sat under a tree and watched dad interviewed by Sarah Ferguson um you know sort of weeks previous to that and we'd been told that they had something bad but we didn't know what that was and we didn't know how bad it was going to be um, and Sarah even said to my, fa- my father, she said, this is your chance to say your piece. Um, but turns out it wasn't really. It was, um, it was pretty much already decided what, what angle the program was going to take. And um, it was just sort of a, a token gesture, I guess, that um, we were in it. Yeah, so when it aired, I was at boarding school with my sisters, uh, about a thousand k's from home uh, in Alice Springs we were, Um, and I guess the school I was going to, not a huge rural focus, not a lot of people really understood what we were doing or why we were doing it, so um, fielded quite a few curly questions from my (laughs) classmates. Um, and being a young person myself, not really understanding, um, you know, further down the supply chain and, and those sort of things, it was quite hard to be confronted with that by your peers and also a, a huge sense of helplessness in that the live export industry underpinned my entire life, but I had absolutely no control over what was happening um, and a huge amount of uncertainty there for our family. It was a really chaotic and uncertain time for our family and I think that uncertainty and lack of control was mirrored in a lot of producers in that this was something that was pretty well entirely out of their hands but affected them, you know, completely. 
So there you go, Donald Sullivan up on stage this morning at Live Exchange sharing her memories of that time in 2011. And hi, I'm Billy. And we're, we're from, from Eagle Rock Station. Station. I listen to the Country Hour podcast as I'm out and about on the station, and so should you. Hope everyone's having a good season and enjoying their lunch. You're listening, listening to, to the, the Country, Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon, broadcasting from the Live Exchange 22 conference being held in Darwin this year. And we'll be back with more news from the conference in a moment. But first, my goodness, if you're in the cattle beef sector have you heard this so these plans these big plans to create a new national lobby group to represent all the grass-fed cattle producers of this nation it's now facing legal action in the supreme court of queensland yesterday the civil matter brought forward by queensland-based cattle producers australia it alleges that the cattle council of australia illegitimately took over the reform process it's all a bit complicated and a bit messy, isn't it? But it's not great for those trying to get Cattle Australia up and going. CBA co-chair Paul Wright explained to the Country Hour its reasons for the legal challenge. The, the vote that took place within the Cattle Council was, was only a Cattle Council-sponsored vote. It wasn't a levy payer-sponsored vote at all. They were voting on a draft constitution that uh, was certainly not approved by the Restructured Steering Committee, which was the... Uh, industry-appointed body to oversee the reform process. So nominations for board positions on Cattle Australia, they actually opened on Friday after the official start of the Cattle Australia Constitution. Partner with Creevy Horrell Lawyers, Dan Creevy, says it won't be affected by this legal action. Yes, the process continues. Um, we've, we were able to get an urgent hearing so that uh, the matter can be determined by the court. So it's before the court uh, on the 29th and 30th and Her Honour Justice Brown will hear the matter then. Okay, so business as usual in terms of nominations for board positions and last week on Friday, the Constitution for Cattle Australia was officially started. That's still in place? That's correct. Nothing's had to come to a stop? No. So there you go. The ABC has contacted Cattle Council of Australia for comment. My goodness, eh? They're trying to put this together and they've been working on it for years and now as it's getting right towards the end and they're calling for for board nominations, there's this legal action simmering in the background. It is all a bit messy. It really is. It is four to one here on the Country Hour. Uh, Hi, I'm Max Emery. I'm the proprietor of Desert Garden Produce, Central Australia the Bush Tomato King. When I'm out picking every day, my wonderful hour spent on the radio is with the Country Hour. And we are broadcasting from the Live Exchange Conference. More than 400 people in the Darwin Convention Centre for this event, including Millie Nolan from the Livestock Collective. Haven't seen you for a while. Welcome to the Country Hour. Oh, thank you, Matt. We're, we're, We're booth buddies at the moment. You're in the booth right across from me. And you've got two virtual reality headsets, and all morning you've had people, old and young, coming along, sitting down, putting on their headsets. Tell us what's happening. 
These are virtual reality headsets and the idea is to transport people directly to the agricultural supply chain. So we have people on board live export ships, we've got people on trucks, on stations, even mustering <laughs> in, on helicopters and they're a really big asset and tool for us at the Livestock Collective. We actually use them um, with kids, like we go to the likes of like Perth Royal Show and those big things where people don't always have the chance to see um, parts of agriculture and parts of farming so we really want to transport them there and give them that opportunity. A moment ago there was a big lineup of students from Taminmin College here in the Northern Territory. What were some of their responses? Yeah, it was, um, they were actually pretty funny to watch because it's a virtual reality and so you're all of a sudden on a truck and you've got cattle running underneath you so it's a really good response. We always receive really positive comments um, wherever we go with the virtual reality headsets. Do you think you've inspired a, a few new careers? I hope so. It's certainly the purpose of it. Uh, and on our website as well, we do different virtual reality tours of the likes of live export ships so people can always have access to that real transparent information from the comfort of their own home. Yeah, so, t- so for those who can't make it to the conference, is there any way they're able to experience uh, this? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Jump on our website, uh, thelifestockcollective.com.au. Uh, we've got a VR ship tour on there, so that means that you can really have access to sheep and cattle, see how they're stocked, see their access to feed and water and everything like that. Uh, yeah, right from the comfort of your I'm going to come over in a moment and experience what it's like to be in an R22 because I'm a bit of a nervous flyer, so <laughs> VR's the the go. Yeah, well, I hope you're not um, too dusty <laughs> from the night before because the helicopter mustering ones, they do... They, really? You know, it's the yeah, real yeah, deal? Yeah, it's real deal. You can see everything. It's great. It really immerses you. Thanks so much for being on the country, our Millie. I'll no let worries, you get back Matt. to the booth. Thank you. <laughs> Millie Nolan from the Livestock Collective. Hi, this is John from Territory Natural Resource Management, and I'm out at Simpsons Gap collecting water samples for the Outback Water Project, and it's a lot more fun with the ABC Country Hour playing alongside me. Matt Brown with you this afternoon, broadcasting from the Live Exchange Conference in Darwin. This is the biggest event on the calendar for the live export industry. The theme this year, it's a long one, but I'll share it with you. The theme is from here to there together, strengthening our foundations and creating connections. This is a two-day conference that's attracted more than 400 people and they have come from all over. Uh, This is the NT Country Hour, so you'll appreciate the focus thus far has been on the live cattle trade, but of course plenty of discussions being had here today regarding the live sheep trade, and isn't that an interesting one with the federal government vowing to phase it out over the coming years. So all kinds of interesting discussions happening at the Darwin Convention Centre. In a moment on the Country Hour you will be hearing from a commercial banana farm in the top end that has been given a deadline. A deadline at the end of this month to have ripped out and buried its entire banana plantation. We're talking around 3,000 trees, 3,000 banana trees dug up, buried, gone. You'll hear from that business in a moment. And we'll also be catching up with Troy Setter from the Consolidated Pastoral Company. He's also the chair of Live Corp. He will be giving you an update on how things are faring in Indonesia when it comes to foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease. So still plenty to come on the program. Let's go to the Weather Bureau now. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. And Billy, the Bureau has just issued a severe thunderstorm warning for people in parts of the Simpson, Lassiter and Tenamai districts. What can you tell us? 
Yeah, good day, Matt. Um, yep, so that thunderstorm warning is for damaging wind gusts. Um, yesterday, we had a very similar atmosphere and we did get a, an 85 kilometre per hour wind gust at Kintor. Um, so, yep, the weather pattern is repeating itself. Um, so you've got that severe thunderstorm warning in place. Um, some of these thunderstorms, yeah, have just developed in the last 30 minutes. So um, they're up around the Tanami and then also uh, near the South Australian border, just to the north of Kalgoora. Um, yeah, if you're sort of on the highway around Eldunda, you'll probably notice them. Um, so yeah, if you're on the road, take care. Um, we expect these thunderstorms to persist throughout the afternoon and into the, the early evening. Um, Alice Springs is just within the warning. Um, there's no imminent risk but um, we do expect throughout the afternoon that the thunderstorms might move closer to Alice Springs as well. Okay, potentially much rain in it, Billy? No, I wouldn't think so. Um, so yesterday's storms, we sort of saw one to two millimetres. Uh, we're forecasting, yeah, really just probably one to five. May get the isolated fall of up to 10 millimetres, but um, they're not really the thunderstorms that are capable of producing a lot of rain. Um, more, more like the type that produce a lot of wind, unfortunately. Okay. Meanwhile, in the top end, things are starting to fire up a little bit. There's some, uh, there's some storms starting to build to the east of Kulpinya and around Howard Springs, it seems. Yeah. So today is a little bit more bubbly than yesterday, um, which does give the top end a better chance of seeing some rain so we are forecasting those isolated showers and thunderstorms right across the top end um still unfortunately not widespread rainfall that's going to bring the temperatures down so it's still very hot out there but um you're right we are seeing some thunderstorms at the moment there and as well as um up in the northern arnhem district and of course up on the tiwi islands and Expect that to extend southwards to the Catherine region and um, across the Arnhem district and even down around Wadair and the southern Daly district as well later this afternoon. Okay. And um, for all those mango growers out there, is it potentially another afternoon and evening of, of gusty winds? Yes, potentially. We did see some fairly gusty winds yesterday afternoon. Um today is a similar day so yeah do be on guard with any thunderstorms this afternoon they may may come down with with another strong gust um the trend though over the next few days is for them to become a little bit more a little less gusty and produce a little bit more rainfall okay anything else we need to be aware of on this wednesday lunchtime not for today matt yeah still got the heat wave warning in the north um we are anticipating some elevated fire dangers in the, the southwest of the Territory over the next couple of days, but um, I guess we can talk about that in more detail uh, in the next couple of days, Matt. No, no worries, Billy. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. As Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau, just looking at some of the rainfall figures up to 9 o'clock this morning. Howley Creeks had 16 millimetres. Pelangimbi Airport, 19 in the gauge. Tortilla Flats has had 9. And the Upper Catherine River reported 10 millimetres. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour broadcasting from the Live Exchange Conference being held in Darwin this year. This is a big event for Australia's live export trade. I've got some messages here from you this afternoon. 
via the text line 0487 991057. Mark in Howard Springs says, Matt, when the Four Corners slaughter video hit the airwaves, the next day Southern MP electoral officers had queues of unhappy constituents hunting their local member. This put the self-preservation wind up the pollies, hence the knee-jerk ban. Cattlemen have got to understand this, reckons Mark. And someone else has messaged in to say that they enjoyed hearing from Jim Sullivan's granddaughter. And they say they knew Jim when he was at Tortilla Flats. Yes, that is right. The legendary Jim Sullivan would have been very proud of Donald up on stage this morning. Uh, as I said, later on we'll be speaking to Troy Setter from CPC to get the latest on how foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease is going over in Indonesia, that all-important customer for Australian live cattle. But before that, let's talk horticulture. A banana farm in the Northern Territory has been given three weeks to comply with a government order to eradicate its entire banana plantation. Rum Jungle Organics was one of the first properties in the Territory this year to test positive for banana freckle disease. Owners Julianne Murphy and Al Peterson say the notice from government has been sudden and not fair. Uh, Yeah, Matt, we were negotiating... A removals plan, like we were, we were willing to be compliant on that, and we were in the middle of negotiating a plan. And there was a national meeting, and within 24 hours of the national meeting, we had a, received a formal notice under the law to remove the plants within 25 days. And basically, you know, giving us a small amount of money, not enough money, nowhere near enough money to be able to achieve it. And we've been without an income for six months nearly now. So. I don't know how we expected to find money. And the other the other angle there, Matt, was we had been offered a lump sum walk payment on the basis of exactly what we received last time in lieu of having to go through the um, owner reimbursement cost process, which is very lengthy and very stressful. Um, and we had accepted that. And now that, that we didn't get to a removals plan on time and we've got this notice they've withdrawn that offer. Right. So are you getting any compensation at all? Well, unless they manage to get a value down here before the crop is destroyed, no. It doesn't look like it. So, but we're not sure, Matt. One of the problems we've had all the way, all the way through, is that no one's laid out what happens, what's going to happen, what's likely to happen, you know, um, what is the procedure, what is the process that we're supposed to follow. If we can't make, you know, nobody said to us, if you can't get a um, an agreement together on how by we're going by a such and such a date, by a such, yeah, by a such and such a date, nobody's given us one of those. We've had no deadlines. We've not, and then all of a sudden we've got a deadline a day after the meeting, after two weeks of absence of discussion because they put the department or the actual chief planning health officer put the, us on hold for any further discussions or negotiations about our eradication on the farm. Right, so you've now got a deadline of November 28 to remove around 3,000 banana trees. How possible is that? And put them in a hole, a trench. It's not possible, Matt. We've got to to organise machinery quotes, change our insurance policy, clear land and get a permit to build a pit, uh, find safety regulations for how a pit needs to be built, and then find some employees and then start the um, removal. So 
25 days, it it is what under the law is called impossible performance. It cannot be done. And we're supposed to actually say that we're going to take the money or not by Friday this week. They've given us five working days to work out whether the $40,000 that they're going to offer us to help us remove the thing, uh, remove the crop, is... is um, if we accept don't accept it. it by Friday this week, then we, we, we don't it's not get any. Available to yeah. us. So, but we've had problems with that because we couldn't be talking. If we signed that document, we couldn't be talking to you now. Forty thousand dollars won't even won't even cover the wages for somebody to for people to take it out, let alone all the extra work. How, how much does it cost to remove three thousand banana trees? We don't know, Matt, because we haven't been given enough time to do any valid costings or find out prices, and we suspect they haven't done that either. It, basically, this time frame and this notice and the deed connected to it, which only gave us five working days to review it, to review it and accept it, or we lose it and we still have to do the notice under our own money, basically that goes against all of the principles that are in the emergency pest response deed. The emergency pest response deed is designed to provide social justice for all growers who, through no fault of their own, have been impacted on this pest. And basically, this is going to cost us our business. And we're the uh, and, and, and as, as you said, uh, freckle was found on your property. What back in in sort of May, June. Yep. What's happened over over these last few months and I guess people wondering why, uh, you know, the eradication of those trees didn't start earlier. Well, but the answer to that, basically, Matt, is for us, nothing happened until we initiated contact in August, saying, "Come on, what's happening?" Because we've we're running out of time for weather. We all knew we were getting eradicated, but nothing happened. And then there was a couple of holdups with triggers and changes and finding more, but. In the meantime, they still knew they were going to eradicate us but didn't do it. Unfortunately for your business, this is a repeat of what happened years ago when Freckle was first detected. Were you, you put in charge of having to get rid of your plantation last time or did the government do no. it? No, the government did it. Yeah. The government and did it last we, time, we now negotiated, it's up to you. Right. Yeah, we, we negotiated a, a bit of a plan with uh, the operations manager at the time and the chief plant health inspector at the time, who was Stephen West, we negotiated a pretty simple plan and they employed contractors and came down and did it. And and that's what we expected to happen this time. And we were trying to negotiate a plan with the chief plant health inspector to protect our business. And well, it makes it make the results where yeah. we didn't have soil compaction and eroded roads and run over the gates. And what happens, you know, if somebody injured on the place? Compensations covering it, we, all those sort of issues. We, we thought, haven't been able to discuss that with the chief plant health. So, we, what we, would you like to see happen from here? From here, we would like to see, um, we would like to see that notice revoked because we have there's a, there's a, there's a process there that hasn't been shared with us that we don't believe has been followed. We'd like to see it revoked or put on hold until it can, till we can discuss and finalise how we're going to go about it. We're looking at bankruptcy. We don't have the capability and we don't have the money and this 
response is going to bankrupt us. And if we don't have it completed by the uh, remove all the plants removed and covered and poisoned and that by the end of the twenty uh, eighth of November, then basically they will contract a team to do it for us, and then that will be charged. So they'll, they'll force it and then charge us the costs. That is Julianne Murphy and Al Peterson from Rum Jungle Organics. These farmers actually won the Farm Biosecurity Producers of the Year Award at the National Biosecurity Awards in Canberra back in 2018. They find themselves in a tough spot. Uh, Here at the Country Hour, we put a few questions to the Territory's Department of Industry and have received a statement from the NT's Chief Plant Health Officer, Dr Anne Walters. I'll share that statement with you now. It says, The Department of Industry understands the impact on all property owners and commercial growers who have had banana freckle detected on their banana plants. She says, Banana freckle is a wet spore organism which is spread through rain droplets and wind. The Department of Industry intends to remove all banana plants infected with banana freckle by the 28th of November to prevent the disease spreading more easily before the onset of the wet season. She says, so far the banana freckle response team have removed infected plants from 19 properties and that the department is working closely with the affected property owners regarding the best method of removing the plants and the timing of those removals. Discussions with property owners are confidential she says, and the plan to eradicate banana freckle was put forward to the National Management Group and reviewed on the 2nd of November after the disease was detected on a second commercial property. The plan to eradicate this disease was supported by industry groups. It is essential, she says, that banana freckle is eradicated to protect the future of the banana industry in Australia. It is 20 past one. You are tuned into the Country Hour, broadcasting from the Live Exchange Conference. We'll have a quick tune by our mate Slim, and then we'll be speaking to Troy Setter from Live Corp. Whoa, Bullocks, whoa there. Whoa there, Bullocks. Slim Dusty on a Wednesday lunchtime. You are tuned into the Country Hour, broadcasting from the Live Exchange Conference for 2022. Our guest this afternoon is Troy Setter, who is from the Consolidated Pastoral Company, and he's also the chair of Live Corp. Troy, what would be your summary of how the live cattle trade is going at the moment? Matt, great to be uh, with you here from Live Exchange. I think the live cattle trade, particularly out of northern Australia, is kicked up in the last couple of months. There was a fair bit of uncertainty and, and challenge to a lot of the importers in Indonesia in particular, uh, with foot and mouth and lumpy skin, we've now got vaccine in country, um, and uh, and we've seen increase in numbers through October, November. That looks like it'll flow through to uh, through into December. Uh, there's a couple of things: one, feedlots trying to refill in Indonesia, but also get cattle on feed now for Ramadan and Labaran next year, which is at the back end of Q1. Okay, I've I've heard of some cattle, not all cattle, but some steers in the Northern Territory got around $5.30 a kilo the other day. Now, how palatable is that at the other end of the supply chain? Look, mate, yeah, $5.30 and, and even out to five fifty the other day mm. is, is sort of is very toppy. Um, that won't work on a you know, animal-by-animal animal basis for importers at, at this time, but you know, they'll, they'll be able to work averages. There's a, you know, some optimism by some of the exporters and importers that they'll be able to get the price up in Indonesia. But I think, you know, that sort of 510, 5.20 will work at a pinch, but you know, 5.30 is tight. But, um, you know, Indonesia has, has struggled uh, with foot and mouth disease control and lumpy skin control. 
the local herd has been uh, knocked around a bit. And uh, I think, you know, there'll be some shorts in the market at the back end of Q1 next year. What is your understanding on the latest in terms of, of those two main diseases, foot and mouth and lumpy skin? How is Indonesia going? Look, they're, they're both highly contagious diseases that are spread multiple ways and, and move rapidly. Um, Indonesia's got about 65-ish million at-risk animals. About four and a half, five million animals have been vaccinated and a couple of million have had the disease. So we're starting to see some immunity build up, both natural and vaccinated immunity for foot and mouth, but the disease is still still prevalent. Um, they've done a really good job in Bali of, of getting it under control mm. and Pleasantly, you know, we're starting to see a bit more focus on lumpy skin. Unfortunately, lumpy skin has now moved down into central Java, and uh, and that's uh, that's a worry for all of us. Could it blow in on the wind to northern Australia this wet season? Look, it, I'm not a uh, you know expert in the in the in trade winds and and uh, microscopic insects, but you know, listening to those that are, there is a chance there. It's pretty low. Um, it's pretty low. It, it's it's possible. I think we should be prepared for it if it did come this year, next year, five years, ten years, um, and uh, and have plans in place. But you know, I th- the probability is is still being reported by the experts as being low for this year. But okay. we've got to be ready. On the vaccination rollout, there's been some reports that suggest that Indonesia's you know really working hard. But one of the drivers has been uh, the, the summit, the G20 summit that's on what next week? Next week. Is there a concern that once the leaders leave, the, the foot might come off the accelerator? Look, I think for Bali specifically, there, there is some risk there. There was certainly a big push to get Bali cleaned up for, for G20 and the B20 and, and other events around that. But, you know, we've got the COVID response team headed by Professor Wiku, who's an you know, exceptionally driven uh, operator who's you know, proven to be able to keep... Uh, keep um, COVID under control in Indonesia, leading the foot and mouth recovery right. and vaccination program at the moment, and and he's he's got his his foot pretty flat on the accelerator and pushing people out of the way, and and hopefully he can be given you know continued space to get that done. And are you seeing enough focus on small livestock in Indonesia? In that all I've heard is that there's been a, such a focus on the cattle and the dairy, and yet you know. There's a lot of smaller livestock out there. Yeah, there's, there's more small stock in Indonesia than, than large stock. That said, though, if you look at the reporting on, online, the government does daily reporting in Indonesia. We're now starting to see sheep, goats, pigs um, get uh, get vaccinated and, and that, that program starting to move. They're, they're not as clinically impacted as cattle and buffalo are uh, by foot and mouth and, uh, and are not impacted by lumpy skin, but... Um, yeah, it has been slow on the small stock, and hopefully that continues to speed up. And just finally, Troy, what does uh, someone like yourself try to extract from a conference like this? Look, it's it's I suppose for a couple of ways. One, you know, we've been locked up for a couple of years. It's been really hard to network, and and it's to you know keep old connections strong and, and make new ones. Uh, also, just to learn, there's some great speakers, some real technical and market experts. There's experts talking about leadership and geopolitical issues as well as biosecurity issues. And uh, and also some great trade stalls here. I mean, we all need to renew our equipment and our machinery and, and learn about new vaccines. And, you know, it's all happening here. Beauty. Thank you for your time. I'll let you get back to it. Thanks, Matt. That is Troy Setter, who is from the Consolidated Pastoral Company, and he's also the chair of Live Corp. As I said, this is a, a big event. It goes over two days. This afternoon, the focus will switch from 
the live exporters to the producers is going to be a presentation from David Connolly, the head of the NT Cattlemen's Association, and there will also be a panel discussion about buffalo exports. What opportunities are there to increase the amount of buffalo that get exported out of the Northern Territory? So plenty to enjoy. The Country Hour will be back here tomorrow. If you've missed any of today's broadcast, it'll be up on our podcast later on this afternoon. Keep it rural.